Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Good afternoon, listeners. This is the Dogs Program. The Australian Council for Defence of Government Schools are here every Saturday at 12 noon. We're not on the ABC. No, the ABC wouldn't want us, but we are very proudly on 3CR. And we are here to promote and to defend public education. Now, if you want to find out more about us, we have a website at www.adogs.info and if you want to hear more about us, you can always go to the 3CR website and look at our previous podcasts. Now, this week we have a press release 737. Which way will Gonski jump? The battle for control of education in Australia. Listeners, we're coming into March It's only a week or so away. I think it's even less. And there are two things going to happen in March. My understanding is the Ruddock Inquiry will bring down its report and the Gonski 2.0 will bring down its report. So the uh, rumours and the discussions and the opinion pieces are in the mainstream media. So 3CR are quite happy to read the mainstream media media, but we have our own take on things here, and the the dogs certainly do. Now, the Australian education community is currently awaiting this Gonski Report 2.0, wondering which way Gonski will jump, or should we say how high Gonski will jump for whoever he considers the strongest master, public, private, political, or maybe, maybe his own conscience. For David Gonski himself understands that, as a survivor in the hurly-burly of Australian political, business and even philanthropic life, he is the great survivor. In his own words, he is an accomplished courtier. But has he been given an impossible brief? Which way and to where will he jump? The numbers are on the internet. Australia is falling behind in the international education race. And even for the most hardened materialist, this will affect the monetary value of our Australian education industry. And the levels of inequality in education in Australia and its provision are becoming an international scandal. But what exactly is... David Gonski's job. David Gonski's review to achieve educational excellence in Australian schools will give the Federal Education Minister strategies to raise school performances which will be used as a trade-off for an additional $23 billion over 10 years which are to be injected into the system. You know, this is one of Turnbull's 10-year proposals 
which really means that there won't be that much money available initially. These will be the basis of the 2018 to 2027 funding agreement which will be signed this year and will probably be unsigned if there's a change of government, I suppose. In the Gonski 2.0 terms of reference last May, the government said that the review would provide advice on how this so-called $23 billion over 10 years should be used. In June, Canberra heightened its expectation of the Gonski 2.0 review. Under its Quality Schools, Quality Outcomes banner, the government said its investment in schools would be tied to the implementation of our evidence-based quality reforms, whatever that means. And in the statement on declining PISA standards, it said from 2018, the amended Education Act will tie funding to reforms that will boost education outcomes, whatever that means. Now, where have I got this from? I've got this from the Financial Review of February the 18th, 2018. But in the current situation, as chairman of Gonski 2.0, which way will he jump? Gonski 1.0 has gone the way of all preceding needs policies, namely into private greeds. They've all failed. The Gonski one, on the whole, excepting perhaps in New South Wales, has failed too. But with Gonski 2.0, the chairman is confronted with the stark evidence of the results of all state aid needs policies, growing inequalities and lessening academic results in the Australian education systems. We've had all these needs policies and they haven't worked and things are getting worse. Now, Dr. Glenn Savage, let's look at some experts, some other experts, commentators. He's from the University of Melbourne, so you'd think that he knew a little bit about something. He said that the education debate was driven by deep divisions over who should be in control, and in recent years the roles have become confused. He said that the federal government can't control the flow of money to schools. It can only control the amount that goes into the states under the SRS model. But the states themselves are finding they're less able to assert authority in the debate because there's been a very strong shift in sentiment to accepting a national approach. State policymakers see a shift to national reform, especially on issues such as equity and using an evidence-based approach, Dr Savage said. And of course the MySchool website and the um, evidence on the central internet uh, has played a part here. But of course it doesn't always translate into practice and political divisions come to the fore. Battle for control, this, this, this expression, battle for control, I must admit I like it. It's, um, it's getting somewhere close to what's actually going wrong. I think that Savage is not wrong in using these terms, but he's left out a number of key players in this battle for control. 
Please notice that he doesn't mention that rearguard action of Mr Elder from the Victorian Catholic Education Office, who is determined to redefine the meaning of resources standard so that Catholic schools gather in more money for their overfunded mythical poor parish schools. Nor does he mention the hierarchies and bureaucrats of the various religious denominations who are determined to control their schools and employment policies with minimum attention to public accountability. If David Gonski forgot himself for a moment, and I'll talk about his background in a moment, he's a very interesting person, and if he forgot his self-image as an accomplished courtier, and went back perhaps into his own history, if he followed his conscience, he would look at the policies of Finland, Germany and other countries with successful education systems. And he'd recommend a clearing out of the Australian or Gian stables and the taking over and opening up of the private sector. Dare I say it? He would recommend nationalisation of our education system. Dirty word in some quarters, but the dogs wear it with pride. Taxpayers pay for our schools, whether they're public or private, and they're giving more to the private than they are to the public in many, many instances. It's time an efficient and inefficient system, I'm sorry, that we've got was rationalised and opened up to all children, regardless of their race, religion or ability to pay. So that is our press release, but I'd just like to take time out to say why I think Golsky just might, might have it in him to do something. Where does this person come from and what is his background? Well, the um, Wikipedia's got quite a lot on Golsky, quite a lot. He grew up in eastern Sydney Uh, But before he came to Sydney, he was actually born in Cape Town in South Africa. But before that, his people came from Poland. They were wandering Jewish people, coming probably out of the Holocaust. So um, although he is himself a very wealthy man and has grown up in uh, the wealthiest parts of Sydney with the wealthiest people in Sydney, there is, in fact, a background of very real um, persecution and um, deprivation there. Now, he went to Sydney Grammar. He went to the University of New South Wales, not Sydney, which is interesting, where he did Bachelor of Commerce and also legal, a legal degree, and he did exceptionally well. I think he got the university medal. And then he's now returned to Sydney Grammar as the chair of the Board of Trustees between 2003 and 2010 he was at. But his claim to be the most accomplished courtier in Australia lies in his extraordinarily wide range of networks. Gonski's business background is very extensive and it's estimated that he sits on more than 40 boards according to Wikipedia. You wonder when he sleeps actually. He was also a close friend and advisor to the late media baron, Kerry Packer. They live in the same area of Sydney together. And together with Lloyd Williams, he was executor of Packer's estate. 
Now, while he provided legal and other advice to Packer, Gonski was also a director of Packer's media competitor, John Fairfax Holdings. He's a close friend with Izzy Asper, Arthur Boyd, Rupert Murdoch, Kerry Stokes and Frank Lowry. So uh, one would not expect him to get too offside with uh, the oligarchs of the Australia establishment. But um, when he did go out to the schools in Gonski 1.0, when Gillard wanted him to do something about the glaring inequalities, he was shocked. And he has spoken about this. And he would have liked to have done more, excepting for his terms of reference, which Julia Gillard gave him, because part of the terms of reference were, of course, that no school would lose a dollar. So the wealthy just raked in a few more shekels. And the disadvantaged children in the state schools got a few more crumbs. And they did get a few more crumbs, particularly in New South Wales, uh, more so than in other states. But uh, Robert will be talking about that a little bit later. So that is our press release at www.adogs.info, press release 737, which will go up in the next few days. And um, we'll have a little break for some music. the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial and podcast on the WWWs and indeed um, podcast from our website but also 3CR website at 3cr.org.au um, We are the Defenders of Public Schools and as Gina said in our press release here on the Dogs Program um, Australian education issues are hotting up not just in terms of education but um, on to do with the other issue that we deal with here on the Dogs Program which of course is separation of religion from the state we'll be dealing with that later in the program but for now I'd like to actually highlight a lot of the research that's been going on in terms of the numbers and the figures and the ideas behind those figures um, which are often highlighted by a group called Save Ice Our Schools up in Canberra and their spokesperson and press release writer up there Trevor Cobalt an ex-productivity commission. And this whole Gonski thing is, well, as, as Gina always, always talks about it, public schools have been, I don't know, Stockholm Syndrome thing. They're, they're sort of in love with the idea of getting crumbs from the table um, ra- rather than actually saying, actually, taxpayers' money should go to taxpayers' benefits and public education, of course, being the only education system in Australia where money from taxpayers goes straight to uh, the kids of the taxpayers that's, that they're supposed to be educating. Now, public schools were, in fact, supposed to be the main beneficiaries of the original Gonski funding plan in New South Wales. Now, in New South Wales, public schools received a funding increase nearly double that of the private schools, which then reversed the previous trend of funding cuts to public schools. But then there's the but. The but 
Public schools in New South Wales remains, still remain significantly underfunded, while private schools are now still significantly overfunded. The New South Wales government must increase its funding effort to ensure all public schools in New South Wales are adequately resourced and end its overfunding of private schools. Pretty simple stuff. Pretty, pretty nation-building stuff. <laughs> but no, still it's not happening. Now, he's talking about this in the context, this is Trevor Cobalt, he's talking about it in the context of new figures that show the total government funding, which is the addition of all the state monies and, you know, the Commonwealth monies, a whole lot, for public schools increased by a bit over $1,000 per student, adjusted for inflation, since 2012 to today. Now, over the same period, funding increased for private schools increased by a little bit over half that much. So there is a sort of catch-up going on in New South Wales. And by the way, this is not true in Victoria. This is just in New South Wales. But in percentage terms, the public funding increases are by about 8.7% and by about 6.1% for private schools. Now, the large part of this increase for public schools was due to a large increase in the New South Wales government funding per student, which was, um, which was up to $937. So the bulk of it is the state government pumping money into state schools. This almost restored the cut in funding, <laughs> almost, restored, uh, almost restored the cut of the same amount per student under the New South Wales and Labor Coalition governments um, in the years previously. And this is a um, this is a Liberal government, isn't it? But they, well, had, both, a, had, a, they had a very Lib- good uh, Minister of Education for a while. Labor and Coalition. Mm. Now, the Commonwealth Government's funding for public schools increased by only around about $135 per student per year since 2012, which is slightly less than the earlier period. So what they're saying is, yes, they're putting more money in, but that's because they took pretty much the same amount of money out previously. Now, the Gonski, you know, the original Gonski funding plan was designed to target funding increasing to disadvantaged schools and students. The New South Wales government was the first state government to design a needs-based funding model that was actually compatible with the ideas of the first Gonski. Now, the resource allocation model was introduced in 2014 and things were progressing. But almost all the increases corresponding in private school fundings had nothing to do with the state government. Had Had nothing to do with disadvantage, had nothing to do with needs had nothing to do with anything to do with what we were supposed to be talking about, which was taking the disadvantaged students and then giving them more money because that's what they require. Because the increase in funding for private schools was from the Commonwealth and had nothing to do with any of that. Because the Catholic education officers and the other, other bureaucrats of the different uh, systems controlled the money with no accountability, really. They could give it where they loved. Hmm. And it goes to the basic principle, which actually goes back to Gillard back in the, back in the late, late, late thousands. Um, Gillard, who said no school would lose a dollar. And this was translated into no school would be relatively worse off. So every time you gave an extra dollar to a child that needed it, if every time the state government gave an extra dollar to a child that needed it in a state school, the federal government would come in and match that with a dollar for a child in a private school for no other reason than to say, well, um, you can't lose the dollar. You, you have to maintain what you would call your relative advantage. Your relative advantage, which of course means it's a relative disadvantage. They were still running scared of the private school vote. There's a question as to whether that is as strong as it was. Indeed. 
Now, over the whole the whole period before 2012, you know, up until you know in 2009, 10, the increase in total government funding for public schools was actually almost minimal, and the increase in government funding to private schools was much more. So, what's happened since 2012, and this is Cobalt's analysis, is there's been this slight reversal, but it's been taking it back to some form of reasonable position prompted by the concepts and constructs of Gonski 1.0. Now, despite this attempt to somehow catch up, um, it hasn't worked. It hasn't worked for the simple principle that every time you give a dollar to a child in a public school to catch up from all the cuts that have happened previously, every time you do that, you then give another dollar to a child in a private school, the relative disadvantage stays the same. It's an inflationary, believe it or not, it's an inflationary funding model. Now, under the Turnbull government, this whole Gonski 2.0, which is where we are supposed to be now, future funding increases and public schools are largely left now to to have nothing to do with the federal government at all. It's all to do with state and territory governments. In fact, it caps Commonwealth funding to public schools at 20%. So they're saying, we're going to give state schools a certain amount of money and no more ever, just because... Now, in 2018, Commonwealth funding for New South Wales public schools is around about 17.7% of their SRS, and it's due to increase over the next 10 years to around about 20%, so not very much at all. However, the New South Wales government funding for public schools is only at 71%. So if you add 71% and 17.7%, if you add those two numbers together, what do you get? Well... You don't get 100%, that's for sure. In fact, you get around about 90%, a little bit less. If you're lucky. So at the moment in New South Wales, systemically and structurally, because of the fights between the Commonwealth and the state government and the way the whole thing's worked out, every single New South Wales public school is getting 90% of what it's due as of today. Now, that's just a fact. None None of these figures are in dispute. Everyone knows this. So... If that's what's going on, so you know, every single public school in New South Wales is getting 90% of what it's due, but what it's due, and what it's due is in fact less than what's required. In contrast, in New South Wales, the Catholic school system is already funded at 100% of their SRS and will become overfunded into the future, into the next 10 years. In 2018, Commonwealth funding for Catholic schools amounts to 78% of their SRS and is due to increase to 80%. However, New South Wales government funding is currently at 22% of their SRS. So Catholic schools, as of today, are going to be funded at 100% and in the future by 102% of what it is that they are due. And when I say due, I'm using that one in inverted commas because as far as I'm concerned, Catholic schools are due no public funding whatsoever, especially if Catholic schools are not willing to abide by the laws of the land. And we'll talk about that in a little while when we come to the Radic Inquiry on, on inverted commas religious freedoms. Now, independent schools, so that's the Catholic schools, they're already way ahead of the game. Independent schools are already overfunded. And this will increase over the next 10 years. So let's just put it out. Um, 76% of their funding is being provided by the Commonwealth and 27% is being, being provided by the state. 
So if you add 76 and 27, you get, yes, 170, 107% of what they're due is what they're currently getting, and that will increase over the next 10 years. State schools, 90% of what they're owed. Independent schools, 170% of what they're owed. 107% of what they're owed. That's the way it is now. That's a scandal. That, that, that's just, considering the majority of children in New South Wales go to, you guessed it, public schools, this systemic problem is just a scandal. And at the moment, to sort of add some sort of obscene insult to injury, the independent schools and the Catholic schools are fighting each other over equity and fairness. The independent schools are accusing the Catholics of being a uh, giant um, opaque bureaucracy that won't tell anyone, tell anyone where the taxpayers' <laughs> monies are going, which, by the way, is completely and accurately true. And the Catholic school system are having a go at the independent school system, saying, hang on, you get, a, you get 170, 107% and we only get 102% and, and that's not fair. Money. And, neither, and neither, of the, neither of those two systems acknowledge that the public school system even exists. As in this whole debate, neither the independent schools or the Catholic schools have mentioned once the fact that state school systems are getting nine. State school systems don't exist as far as these people are concerned. In fact, if they do, it's just as a place to send all the other children that aren't ours. And we don't care about those because, well, guess what? They're not ours. There's an, there's an obscenity to the whole process. But I would like to thank very much Trevor Cobol from Save Our Schools for providing the raw numbers. And sometimes I know some of your listeners go, Robert, why do you keep on going about the numbers? Well, because there's news, right? And there's facts. And there's fake facts and all that sort of stuff and whatever it is that people talk about these days. And yes, I sometimes do go on a rant. But when I go on a rant, it's because I look at the numbers and it makes me angry. And so I think it's worth sharing the numbers with you guys to know exactly why it is that I'm going on about this silliness. Anyway, you're listening to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM dial with Jim, myself and the Dale here in the studio. I think we'd better calm down before we get into the next big thing, which is, I would say, the very worrying travesty, which is the Ruddock Review of Religious Freedoms and Liberties and whatever it is that they want to talk about. Um, up in Canberra, um, the churches are pushing back on what it is that they see as a threat to their right to discriminate, their right to have prejudice when it comes to their religions. Um, but what we're doing now, I think, let's, let's have a bit of music.
Welcome back to the Dogs Program here on 3CR 855 on the AM Dial and podcast on the WWWs. That's a bit of music to come. It's a bit of Aida, just for fun. I know many of our listeners um, uh, question me on, on question us on our taste in music, and it's quite eclectic. You're never quite sure what you're going to get, but we've got a bit of Aida there. We tend to go earlier rather than later, don't we? But that's not always true. Oh, and, we um, like the trumpets. Yes, indeed. Look, something's going on in Australia that's just weird. Something's going on in Australia that hasn't really happened in this country ever. Something's going on in this country that happened in what we would like to call continental Europe around about 400 years ago. We're having a really good sit down and a bit of a chat and a tete-a-tete on what it means to have religious liberty. Weird, isn't it? This is Australia, you know. I grew up in a country where you go, yeah, look, live and let live, live and let die, do what you want, that's fine, keep it in your, keep it in your lounge room or your church, nothing to do with me. But no. No, there was, a, there was a same-sex marriage sort of survey and then they passed legislation and this has activated um, a certain section of our community that thinks that because perhaps gay people might be allowed to marry each other, um, this, is, this is an aggressive act that might um, impinge upon their religious liberties. And to this end, the government of the day had decided to give to Philip Ruddock an inquiry to have an inquiry into the protection of, re- protection of religious liberties. This is an assumption, somehow, that the state um, should have an entrance into people's souls, a window into people's souls. Um, and I thought that this went out with Queen Elizabeth I. Well, yes, it, it, it's interesting because at one level this is just a deeply philosophical, not semantic, it's a deeply philosophical idea about big, big ideas. It's about what people believe and what people should be free to believe. Um, it's, and, and why, I, personally, I wouldn't give it to a bloke like Philip Raddock straight off. Um, in fact, I wouldn't give it to anyone. In fact, not giving it to a single person I think is a really good start. Yeah. Um, but he's been calling for submissions, and some of the submissions are very interesting. Um, some of the submissions are actually very worrying. Um, and I'd like to go through this because this, this affects the education debate directly. Because at the moment in Australia, currently at the moment in Australia, religious institutions have exemptions from the laws of the country. So Sharia law trumps common law when it comes to an Islamic school's hiring, firing and enrolment processes. And also it what just people does. wear, what, this, what the actual uh, uh, teachers are told that they must wear, even teachers, in the teachers, teachers, teachers and students. Now, this is where it gets complicated, and I think it's actually worth taking a little bit of time over this. Schools, and we just talk about schools here, and we talk about schools and religious liberty and all that sort of stuff. Um, schools have uniform policies. You will be sent home in some schools if you have the wrong colour socks. State schools, private schools, that's, that, that just happens. It, it's a functional part of life. If you refuse to take your hat off while coming into class or your socks are the wrong colour or your dress is, dress is the wrong length or that sort of stuff, schools as communities make collective decisions about what it is that they wish their students to abide by in terms of codes of conduct and dress. Do I have personally a problem with that? Not really. Um, that's just local school community taking, you know, taking a, re- a, a probably sometimes reactive but sometimes proactive response to what it is that they want their school to produce. Do I personally think it's of significant educational value? No. 
No, I, th- I think it's a furphy, and I think there's a large number of people in schools that will spend 80% of their time wondering what children we're wearing and 20% of the time wondering what they're learning. Um, but, that's, but that's not the debate we're having today. So when it comes to dress and wear and scarves and headscarves and that sort of thing, I don't think that's the debate. I really don't. What I do think the debate is, is that you will be fired from this school because Sharia law states that your behaviour and your actions, or even your very existence as perhaps an LBGTQI person, is offensive to our religion, and so therefore you will not be employed in our Islamic school because Sharia law says that you will not be in the presence of our children and, and your, your presence and your actions are offensive to us. So we will sack you or we will not employ you. Um, and they hold this right as an exemption from the anti-discrimination laws of this country. This is also true, not just of Sharia law, but it's true of canon law. It's true of all sorts of religious beliefs and precepts which are held dear and um, very sincerely by people in this country. And by saying this, I'm not disparaging these beliefs. I'm not disparaging the views of those people who hold Islamic beliefs that say, this is what I want from my family, this is, this is how I want to bring my child up. I'm not actually making a judgment on any of those things. Um, if people want to gather in a place and they have a religion which is purely for uh, women and they say we do not want men in this space because that, that is something that is offensive to us collectively and individually and we want to have the time and space to gather collectively as women together or men together um, and we wish to exclude us, we, we wish to discriminate. I actually think there is a place for that in a plural society. I think in a civilised society those things can, should and have been tolerated. There were wars fought over these things, the wars of religion in Europe, um, very significant wars fought over this. And it was born, I'm sure Jean will tell you and reinforce, out of the ideas of the Enlightenment. And from this came the concept, very simple, simple concept of a separation between those ideas and those views and the role of the state and what it is that the state was. So you have in history you know, the Islamic caliphates and you have Byzantine emperors and all, all these things where the religion and the state work hand in hand and one is the other and you cannot separate them. And then you have places like Australia where there is a basic assumption that these two worlds the world of the spirit, the world of belief, and the world of law and the world of society and the world of people coming together and mutual respect are actually separate. Well, we, we, we believed that this was the case and we tried to, to, to put it. Uh, Inglis Clark, who was a Unitarian, and Higgins, who was almost certainly an atheist, put it into uh, the Constitution and they managed to get the numbers. But even so, even in 1900, there were proud men in their theological halls who quarrelled over who took precedence at the actual federation, whether it was going to be the Archbishop of Sydney, the Catholic one or the, um, or the Anglican one. And they seemed to have even then learnt nothing. And they seemed to have still learnt nothing. They still seemed to want to have privileged places in the Australian society. Um, and there is a question as to whether or not this is actually Christian. You know, Christ himself was not a respecter of persons and neither was Paul. But um, there, there is still this desire to somehow uh, have status and also as part of this status have the um, 
right to tell other people how to live their lives. It's, it's a very difficult area. It's an extremely difficult area, and it's been given to a bloke called Ruddock. Um, and one of the first things he did was, well, I'm going to take submissions. So in the process of taking submissions, he takes submissions from, you know, which is entirely appropriate in a plural society, he takes submissions from everyone. Now, who are the people giving submissions? Well, the first thing, of course, that happened in terms of giving and taking the submissions is that a large group of Christian organisations came together and created almost instantly a multi-million dollar lobbying group. <laughs> and that lobbying group put together um, a submission that stated quite categorically that they wished to not just maintain their, their current abilities to discriminate, because they have these, they have these rights already at the moment. They already have these they, rights. They already have these rights. Nothing's actually been taken away. But to cement these rights, uh, to be able to, for instance, sack a teacher in a Catholic school who declares that they wish to marry their same-sex partner. The act of marrying their same-sex partner and being a teacher in a Catholic school are now incompatible. Catholic Church says we want the rights to sack that person and not have them work in our school. Now, the, the irony of this situation is in Australia, they already have that right. They can do it today. They did it yesterday. They can do it tomorrow. This is the right they currently have. Nothing that's happened in the same-sex marriage debate or any legislation that's been passed in the last 12 months affects this right at all. But they now want this reinforced. Now, when I talk about Sharia law or canon law or, or Christian belief as it, as it plays out in any context like this, um, I'm, I'm conflating these things. The views of each religion, of course, are completely different. And not all religions view this in anywhere, any, anywhere like uh, the, the same way. But from all sorts of functional perspectives, the right to discriminate based upon is what I'm talking about. So, which is why I'm sort of reluctant, Gene, to get into specifics about, you know, clothing and dresses and this is and that is. Because I think this is a big, bigger question. Now, I think before we discuss this in detail, I think it might be worth looking at what one particular, one particular religious group has put forward as a submission. And this particular religious group is a religious group that's very used to discrimination very used to prejudice and it's very used to dealing with situations where a large number of people dislike them and that group of course is the Quakers now the Quakers are an interesting mob because they put a submission in saying that no such religion no such exemptions for religions should be placed into the law of Australia this is because there have always been separation of um, religion from the state from the very beginning however it should be noticed that the uh, Quakers have a school in Hobart that was largely financed originally by Cadbury's uh, and it takes state aid. So even the Quakers in Australia have their price, I'm afraid. But I find it very interesting that they've now gone back to what their original position always was because if anybody suffered um, uh, persecution in Europe, it was the Quakers. Because... Quakers actually reframe it, and I think it's an interesting reframing, and often you'll get lobbying groups reframing things in various ways. But in terms of freedom to discriminate, no, they talk about it in terms of freedom of conscience. Mm. 
freedom of conscience. Freedom of conscience is a different thing. So, for instance, Quakers have a freedom of conscience from their minds, so they um, will never fight or take life in war. They will be conscientious objectors because that is their conscience when it comes to such things, or that is, that is their religious interpretation of fulfilling their religious uh, beliefs and destinies. But we'll come back to that. Now, there's an interesting article here, which I find interesting, in Eternity, um, which relates to this. This is the Anglican it paper, is. Uh, which, is, which refers to a man who used to uh, write the word eternity in chalk on the streets of Sydney. He was an old derelict, um, oh. an old alcoholic who was reformed. And they do indeed. So a young teacher was pregnant and unmarried, so the Christian school sacked her. A church-based welfare agency put in a submission to the federal government inquiry suggesting they should be able to keep LBGT people out of aged care facilities. And there are famous bakers who don't want to create certain wedding cakes for certain people who aren't of the right sort of sexual attraction. A street preacher is taken before an anti-discrimination commissioner for summarising the Bible's version of, well, their their version of the Bible's version of what 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 Christians view um, views are on LGBTI people. A religious charity has been told that it can insist that its local leaders must belong to a domination that founded it. Now, these are all real-world examples that form the background to the Prime Minister Malcolm Turnbull's setting up of an external panel to examine, and this is the question that. And I think this is important. This is a question that Raddock's asked, being asked to answer. To examine whether Australian law adequately protects the human rights, the human right to freedom of religion. Freedom of religion. Notice not freedom of and from, just mm. of. The terms of reference, and, and I think again this is important, are to consider the intersection between the enjoyment of the freedom of religion and other human rights. I think that's a fascinating question. Because if that's a question in the first place, if there are <laughs> intersections or conflicts between freedom of religion and human rights, then that's, I think, a fundamental, interesting and fascinating question. To also, in terms of reference, to have regard to any previous or ongoing reviews or inquiries that it considers relevant, i.e. the one that happened last year and the one that happened five years ago and the one that happened 14 years ago. This is not new. This, is, this has been happening every five or six years in Australia. There's no doubt that the, um, the churches in Australia of various, various uh, beliefs have felt very much under pressure in the last few years. But they've done themselves in. They did themselves in back in 1981 in the Dogs High Court case when they um, spent such a long time trying to prove that their schools were not even religious. If they're not religious, if they're not run by priests and others, if the, um, if, if the actual religious beliefs of the uh, people who run these schools are of no account, then why, why do they want to discriminate now? Why do they want to claim that they are religious now? Mm-hmm. But by, by reading, um, by encouraging the High Court to read Section 116 uh, down and out of the Constitution, they've actually done away with what they had. It's a very sad situation mm. indeed. It is. Now, I, I won't go on about this eternity article, but basically they're saying religious freedoms from their perspective are messy and even unpredictable. Now, in those examples, 
Um, there's real-world examples. The Young Unmarried Teacher States Act. The school in country Queensland used the vehicle of an industrial agreement, so the common law, to support the code of conduct. It was robust enough to make the sacking stick in Queensland. The leaders of the church-based schools uh, that, that um, the writer of this article discussed were horrified and wrung their hands and say, oh, that's terrible, we shouldn't have done it, but it happened anyway. You get this a lot, I'm sorry, and this is where I am cynical. You get this a lot with religious leaders saying, oh, but we want the right to fire an unmarried pregnant teacher, but we'd never use it because we're nice people. And then they do. And then they go, well, that was just a very particular thing, but we, so we wouldn't do that normally. And we're very sorry, but, 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 but. Oh, yeah. Meanwhile, you have a single parent without a job. Oh, indeed, straight up, straight off the bat. Now, this whole process um, is a fascinating one because remember I mentioned before there was a group of churches that came together. Now, the churches that came together were these, and this is their name, by the way. They are called, this is the brand new lobby group that's just popped up just for this submission. It's called Freedom for Faith. And the submission was put in by Patrick Parkinson on, on behalf of Freedom for Faith. It was also on behalf of, and get this, they came together really quickly. Okay. What they, what they call the Australian Christian Churches, which includes Hillsong, the Baptists, Presbyterian Church of Australia, Seventh-day Adventist Church, the Anglican Diocese of Sydney, note only Sydney, the Barnabas Fund, Assembly of Confessing Congregations within the Uniting Church, so not the whole Uniting Church, the Christian Reformed Churches of Australia, Free Reformed Churches of Australia, Church Communities of Australia, the Sydney Chinese Churches Association, the EV Church, the Fellowship of Independent Evangelical Churches and Crusaders. Other groups and individuals have also indicated their intention to endorse the submission put forward. So there you have a particular subset. Obviously, the Catholic Church has put a submission. I'm sure that would marry that that would marry up with what this group called Freedom for Faith are all about. And I'm pretty sure the Islamic churches would have said nothing. Churches, the the Islamic organisations would have said pretty much nothing, because that's what they do in Australia. (laughs) Because if they do stick their head up, then um, it creates problems for both their community and um, and and arguments. Because there is, I have to say, some prejudice in Australia when it comes to Islamic submissions to government. Now they're saying these 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 are the proposals of of this this multi this multi um, faith group. Now they say, and th- th- these are the words they use: our proposals provide better support for diversity in Australian society. Their proposals do not seem to wind back any legal rights for those who identify as LGBT. However, they still like the idea that they can sack them from their schools. Our proposals will not compromise public safety. Why do they even have to say that? Our proposals do not seek to special privilege for peoples of faith. Yeah. So they've started off by saying these things. That they talk about what they're not. Mm. Um, the other interesting thing about the oral submissions given by this group and many others to the Radic Commission, they demanded that their oral submissions would be in camera, that is, in secret, because they did not feel... And, and these are their words, they did not feel, in their words, that these submissions um, could, be, could be in public because of the antithetical and aggressive attitude towards Christian people in Australia. Christian people, of course, being a, a significant persecuted minority. 
which I find. I think we're going to have to talk about this some more because we're running out of time here on the Dogs Program, and quite frankly, we haven't got to the most important part of the show, which, of course, is to highlight a great state school of the week, which is exactly what we're going to do now. But we'll come back to this. I think this needs a couple of shows to get through because the ideas are complicated. Because obviously they're not the only people submitting. There's the Quakers who are submitting and, of course, various other secular groups like Australians for Separation of Religion from the State and, of course, the LBGTQI community. I think it should also be said, Robert, that when you mentioned that the Barnabas group and some of these groups um, are part of this uh, combination of Christian churches, you're actually dealing with people who have come to Australia from other countries where there is real persecution of Christians, where in fact you're looking at, at genocide in some areas. So um, this whole question of religious liberty means a great deal to some of these people and they want um, Australia, they want to feel secure in Australia and for some reason they don't. So I think this also should be said um, because I know some of these people. Oh, indeed. Okay? Oh, don't worry. I mean, there's, there's a few Rohingya wandering around Australia that would feel exactly the same way yep, when it yep. comes to... Yes, well, there's a lot of, a lot of these religion. people you'll find have come from um, places where their oh, whole, whole oh, communities oh, have been wiped absolutely, out. Absolutely, Jane. I, that's why I think this needs a full and fair analysis because yep. it is a complicated question. And, in fact, it's a question that's very dangerous to ask mm-hmm. and becoming more so, which, I, which is the one thing that worries me more than anything else. But... And now it's time for State Schools Are Great Schools. Every week on the Doctor Program we have a special segment to show a different state school is a great school. State schools are great schools. School of the week. State school. School of the week. Great state schools. State schools. School of the week. School for the week here on the Dogs Program. Welcome back to the Dogs Program, State Schools are Great Schools, and today's Great State School is an interesting example, something that I wouldn't normally choose. It's McKinnon Secondary College. It's down there in the southeast of Melbourne. It's an interesting place. It is by no means struggling, <laughs> absolutely by no means struggling. Um, the average wealth of the students, in, the parents of the students in this school are exceptional. 83% of the kids that go to McKinnon Secondary College are in the richest half of Australians. 53% are in the richest quarter. These kids are happy and fine. There's only 3% of kids going to McKinnon Secondary College who are from the poorest quartile of Australia. This relates specifically to the wonderful thing called postcode fascism, which we have here in Melbourne. Um, They come from the local inner southeastern area. The place is, in fact, surrounded by a very large number of very high-fee-paying schools, including Caulfield Grammar. Um, uh, If you want to send your child there, you can cough up $30,000 a year. But if you send your child to McKinnon Secondary College, you cough up, and this is fascinating, there are actually not insignificant parent contributions at McKinnon Secondary College. If you want to send your child to McKinnon Secondary College, fees, charges and parental contributions for your child per year are around about $1,500. That's a bit like Melbourne High. More than a bit like Melbourne High. More than a bit like, more than a bit like that. So, why is this score great? Well... Um, it's not particularly um, it's not particularly diverse when it comes to um, indigenous people. There are zero indigenous students in the school. There are, however, forty four percent of the kids from a background um, other than English, so it's multicultural but wealthy. Uh, do the kids in the school do well? 
Well, because they're all so stinking rich, well, the parents are, <laughs> in relative terms, um, they do just fine. Compared to similar schools, they do just fine. Compared to all schools in Australia, they do bloody brilliantly. Because in Australia, if you come from wealthy backgrounds, wealthy parents with wealthy backgrounds who value education, you're on, you're on a head track. It doesn't really matter what school you go to. However, the one thing McKinnon, there's two things McKinnon has. The first thing, well, to my mind, that make it a great school. Yep, they've got a wonderful intake of kids. Now, they, you know, if you're talking about manufacturing process, they got the best product input. Okay, they got the freshest fruit, so it's going to be the best fruit salad they come up with. But that's they they work at it too. This just doesn't happen naturally. Um, at McKinnon, there's a Year Seven Transition Centre. Okay, it was opened about seven or eight years ago, and it's actually all about getting kids from the primary school into the secondary school without dropping off their engagement. It's about maintaining that interest, and and that Year Seven to that Year Six to Seven bit. And about back in the old days, you know, primary school to high school was just this massive jump and you spent three months in shock. Yeah, they've, they've taken that out as much as they can to create that kind of environment that is welcoming. So it's all damn brilliant. How much does it cost the taxpayer to get these brilliant results for these lovely kids down at McKinnon Secondary College? Remember, average kid in Australia, if you pump in around about thirteen dollars to $15,000, to one of these kids, you're going to get some pretty good results. Like, on average, kids across Australia, including parental contributions, including the $1,500, um, the cost of educating one, one child at McKinnon for one year is a little bit over $11,000, which means in terms of state and federal government, taxpayers' money going into this school per kid per year, you're looking at around about $9,000 per kid per year. By the way, there's 1,500 kids in this school. Okay? That's a lot of kids. Big school. Popular school. A lot of people sending their kids there. I can tell you right now, the waiting list is a mile long. Good teachers. Good teachers, good school, good principal, and good for some time. All schools go in cycle. I happen to know they've had a little bit of a dip, and now they're on the up again. They've they've been re-energised because they have such strong support from the parental community. So this isn't a story about a state schooler struggling on the edges of a regional Australia. This is about one right in the heartland of, of privilege, but still doing a good job. And doing it, dun, 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 discount price for the taxpayer. So why am I saying it's a great school? Well, they've just done something really cool, and this is because I'm an old fogey, I'm going to say this. McKinnon Secondary College has decided to ban mobile phones <laughs> from the entire school. <laughs> During the day. And, and do you know the one thing that's happened that's been, and so that is no, no phones at lunch, no phones at recess, no phones in class. You put it in your locker at the beginning of the day, you pick it up at the end of the day. The schoolyard, all of a sudden, just this year, because it's just the thing that happened at the beginning of this year, has all of it, all the schoolyard at recess and lunchtime has all of a sudden become this amazing, noisy, chaotic mess. People are screaming and running and talking to each other. Um, and the principal, um, that's Pitsa Binnan, said, I hadn't anticipated the level of noise, she said. <laughs> there's laughter. There's people actually, actually interacting and socialising with each other in my school. While many schools have banned mobile phones during class time, the high-performance state school in Melbourne South East has gone one step further. I'm, I'm now quoting from an article in The Age. I just love this. From the start of term one in this school, students have had to store their phones in lockers and are not allowed to touch them until they leave school. She says it's really impacting on learning opportunities for the kids. 
I don't think they were making use of every lesson effectively because they were constantly distracted. Mm. Mobile phones have been around for years, but educators and policymakers are still tackling how to use them. Now, there is a long-running debate about this, of course, but the fascinating thing is that kids themselves, after three weeks, don't want them back. (laughs) The parents, however... (laughs) can't contact their kids through the day and they're taking a little bit longer to get used to it but I'm pretty sure parents in the end will go actually, you know, they're at school they're safe, it's all good text them no, you can't, no, the phones are locked in their lockers yeah, but then the texts are there at half past three. Oh yeah, I know, half past three they get school. all their messages after yeah. school yeah. and it's interesting, there's one other school in, in Victoria that that's Baldwin High School Guess what? Another high-performing, high socioeconomic status school. So I just thought that was wonderful. So good on you, McKinnon. That's great. What a great state school. I mean, even though you've got all the advantages, you're still thinking, you're still working. And I just like the idea of the chaos of the, chaos of the playground coming back to a school. That's brilliant. A bit of uncivilised kids running around, falling over is always a good thing. You've been listening to the Dogs Program. You're on 3CR 855 and the AM dial. We're going over time. We're not going to get all of Joe Hill. I'm terribly sorry, but until next week, on our, you can check us out on our website at www.adogs.info. Until then, of course, from Gene, myself and Dale, it's bye for now. The copper bosses killed you, Joe. They shot you, Joe, says I. Takes more than guns to kill a man, says Joe. I didn't die, says Joe. I didn't die. And standing there as big as life, and smiling with his eyes, says Joe, what they can never kill. Went on to organize, went on to organize. From San Diego up to Maine, in every mine and mill, where workers strike and organize, it's there you find your Joe.